0: Hey, good to worship with you all today, and um, thank you for waking up an extra hour early. It's always funny on um, Daylight Savings, it's only my pastor friends on Facebook that are frantically posting about Daylight Savings and letting the world know, um, and uh, um, so I see it, and they never post anything but Daylight Savings. Anyways, um, so that's, uh, it's funny to uh, look at it in that way. If I could ask a question, and if we had an opportunity to sit, and um, here, I'm sure there would be some incredible stories, but if, we, if I asked you this question of um, how many of you uh, you have, your parents or grandparents um, went through a lot to bring you to where you are today, Right? I'm sure we would have tremendous stories, um, stories of people, grandparents who were uh, born in the war or uh, you know, lived through the Great Depression, um, rags to riches, the first to go get an education or the first to come to faith. And we would have these stories, and somehow all of that legacy that was there um, would land us here. And for a lot of us, we're enjoying the fruit of it. right? And, uh, but during their era, if we think about a generation ago or two generations ago, Um, I'm not sure if they would have known, right? And They were suffering. They were going through hard times. And uh, somehow we could tell these stories and be grateful for that. You know, I think about um, just the struggles my mother had, you know, immigrated here at an early age. I was only six. And uh, um, the first city that that, uh, we moved to was, out of all places in the whole country, someone told us to go to Oakland, that it was a nice town. And so we went to go to Oakland, California. Didn't know better, right? I had a little uh, market slash liquor store in the middle of uh, a very rough neighborhood. Uh, Barely spoke English and uh, somehow got by. Um, In need of finding some people who were similar, we started going to a church. And uh, there... Uh, my mother came to faith, and there I came, you know, and and that was now passed along to me. But during that time, you know, it's difficult, and I think back, and I'm grateful, and I tell stories to my kids about what it was like growing up. No internet, you know, like, what? You know, and no Wi-Fi, and uh, no iPhones, and so on and so forth, but just how life was like, um, and how much their grandparents did, their grandmother did, help them to where they are today. And really, that's the, uh, what's happening here in Ruth. Uh, it is written during the time of David. So it's kind of saying, look at David's lineage. And in his lineage, there is this person named Ruth, a Moabite, not even an Israelite, a Moabite, someone different. And somehow God, in this unlikely situation, brought about a miracle, and David, the king, is born. And so this happens not during the time of uh, David, but during the time of the book of Judges, you know, Gideon and Samson and so on, and Deborah and so on. It's happening during those times. Israel is going through a very tumultuous situation. It's up and down and up and down. And in, in one part, uh, uh, Naomi, there's a lady named Naomi and her husband, they have to leave Israel to end up going to Moab, uh, a different part. Because there was a famine. And so as they go away for the better opportunity, as they become now sojourners, uh, foreigners, in a different land for a better opportunity, they go and they have their two sons and they go away. And it ends up being a a time where the sons meet girls there and they get married and uh, Ruth is one of them. And life seems to be going well for uh, Naomi. And it tells us, though, unfortunately, Naomi suffers a great deal. She loses her husband. But not only does she lose her husband, she loses her two sons. And we see this in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, right? They're talking about the sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malone and Chilion died so that the women... Uh, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And so now there is this heartache. There is this permanent scar in her heart of losing her husband and her two sons. Now the sons here are important, not because simply because they are the children. Of course, that's important. The sons were preferred, not because simply because, oh, they could play ball and we could have fun for the dad in that sense, as some of us might think. But the sons secured their family lineage. The son represented security because they could now take care of the family. The son uh, represented the strength to be able to work. And so there was this kind of, uh, even in a, a, a practical way, that they were going to bring an in income And so the son was looked upon as an answer from God. This is my security. Our family will continue. We will be abundant. And man, if the more sons we can have, right, what a blessing it is. And so it wasn't just a, a preference because, oh, I could do boy stuff with them, as some of us today might think. But it meant so much more. It meant their livelihood. And so she was someone who was in a, a very secure status. Uh, women would now uh, really almost envy her. And then she loses it all. And then it, it is at this time that she tells her two daughters-in-law, why don't you go home? Go back to Moab. I'm going to go back to Israel and try to figure things out. I mean, her security is gone, her, a lot of her property is gone, uh, her future is uncertain, and now she's going to go back as a widow. So the widow in the Bible had this very specific idea of someone who had no resources. And she decides to be generous and let them go, but one of them, Ruth, says, I will go with you. It says in chapter 1, verse 16, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Verse 17, Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do so with me and more. Also, if anything but death departs me from you. This is pretty amazing. I mean, our view of a daughter-in-law and mother-in-law is what we see on uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, right? I mean, it's, it's contentious, it's difficult, it's not easy, right? You know, and someone has said, what's the difference between in-laws and, out-law, uh, in-laws and outlaws, right? They say, outlaws are wanted. You know, like some joke <laughs> like that. Um, uh, uh, I love my in-laws, by the way, and I just share that with you. But really, this is not an easy situation, and it it's easy for Ruth, a young uh, woman, to go back and start life over, push reset and start over. But she says, oh, I'm going to take care of you, and she follows her along. And they get back to Israel, and they find that they're looking for a way to eat as they go to the field. Our, our, uh, one of our uh, relatives owns the field, and go and see how much of the grain you can get. Go beg. Go beg. And it was kind of common that the edges of the land, the leftovers would kind of be left there and, and the people would come and kind of scavenge for that. But the person they go is uh, Boaz. Boaz is a righteous man, a very kind man, and he ends up now helping her initially. Right? Brings over to eat. Right? Takes the bread and the wine and eat. And this is maybe a picture of Christ at, our, at the table that we get to go to. And, and not only that, that he sends her away with so much barley. And some commentators say it's like several hundred pounds worth. And says it's probably unlikely because it was like 200 pounds in today's weight of barley that she's able to take, of grain she's able to take. But I think maybe it was that much. And I think that's how generous he was. And he ends up now uh, thinking about becoming the what's called a kinsman redeemer. During those days, because of the dire need of a young widow, uh, the law was that the nearest male relative could take her in as his wife. And that meant security now. That meant they can go and get everything back. It was the Redeemer. He was going to redeem their life, really. And so they approach him with that, uh, the mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law. And uh, you get to chapter 4, and he says, well, later in chapter 3 and chapter 4, he says, well, you know, there's someone who is a closer kin, and if he's not willing to, I will. And when they ask, he offers it to him, and he says, oh, it's, I, I can't afford it, basically. And so now, Boaz says, I will be the kinsman redeemer. They have a son, Obed. And at the end of this story, right, at the end of chapter 4, you see the, the lineage all the way to King David, and you get to Matthew chapter 1, you see the lineage go all the way to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you see this whole picture of God working here in this very difficult situation. God did not leave us. There are times that it feels like he is not near us, but he did not leave us. Uh, a few lessons I, I wanted us to take away today from this story. And this is, I would encourage you to go home and reread this on your own. I think uh, one of the things we see is a theme of kindness throughout the book, a theme of kindness where you see uh, Naomi releasing her two daughters-in-law, Orpha and Ruth, to go back home. And it was an act of kindness. And you see this, another act of kindness that is demonstrated by Ruth towards her mother-in-law saying, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go and help you. We're going to live together. And then you get to chapter 2 when they encounter Boaz and you see his kindness and the kindness he demonstrates towards them, protecting them, giving them what they need, eventually becoming their kinsman redeemer and taking care of them. And you see this story of kindness as well here. You know, uh, uh, I read an article uh, by a professor of psychology at Stanford, Jamil Zaki, And this professor um, says that kindness is contagious. Kind of almost like a a virus, it's contagious. And some of the studies that they've done to show this, one study that they did was uh, um, to prove this, is they had a group of people come in for an experiment and they took a test. The test was not part of what they were actually studying. But at the end of it, they had promised them an X amount of money. Whatever it was, 20 bucks or whatever it was. They take the (laughs) test but they say, hey, we have a little bit left over. So they give them all an extra dollar. Instead of 20, they get 21. And they say, on your way out, we need you to just watch these short videos, and then you can go. And what they do is they show them videos of this philanthropist and the opportunities to give to these nonprofit organizations. And so they all watch that. You know. And at the end, they let them know. Like, oh, yeah, the previous class, they ended up giving 75% of what they made. From us. They donated 75%. And so then that wasn't true, but they would tell them that to see how much this group would give, knowing that they gave 75%. And then another group uh, was told, oh, yeah, the previous group gave about 25%. And lo and behold, right, what did everyone do? They kind of just went along with what everyone else did. And to prove uh, Dr. Zaki's point, this idea of... uh, kindness being contagious, it spreads, right? And that's what it showed. I mean, we see this today, right? I mean, uh, I'm never sure how much you're supposed to tip someone, right? Uh, Am I supposed to tip them? You know, how much am I supposed to tip them? Am I really supposed to tip someone at Starbucks a dollar for my $1.95 coffee, which it took them nothing to do, but man, that's there, and the guy before me stuck a dollar. You know, do I give that much? Do I give change? Is it insulting? Um, and if you've ever done this where you've given and they had their back turned, they're like, oh man, you know, like you put it in (laughs) and you look and they didn't see you. And you can't pull it back out and put it back in. You know, you're like, oh, Oh, God, you saw that, right? And uh, (laughs) certain countries you go to, they say, boy, it's so nice if you go to this country, there's no tip, no tax or no tip. What? You know, um, I want to go there. All right, And so we learn from those who are around us. Now, you get around a group of people who are very kind. Before you know it, you're going to be kind. Um, You get in your community groups and you're talking and and the people who are leading or hosting or there's someone there that's very kind and complimenting you, you're probably going to act somewhat similar. Now, it goes back ultimately, and I'm not saying, boy, this is a moralistic idea of just be a good person, you know, let's be a good humanist and walk away from you. No, this goes back to the kindness, the loving kindness of our God towards us. And as we think about the kindness of God, as we get together on Sundays and we pray, and as we go through uh, the word and we think about the the sacrifice of Christ towards us, the kindness of God through his son, we say, boy, it prompts me to be kind. You know, these mission trips. One of the things that I love is the response of the people when they say, well, what are you doing here? Well, you know, what are you doing? You know, to go where the tsunami hit and to help them there. Um, They are all wondering, what are you doing here? What are you gaining out of this? And to go and say, oh, we just want to go and gather, we're going to teach English, share about God's love, and, um, you know, encourage you guys. To go to Canton, Mississippi, and to run a basketball camp for a week. Um, You know, it is something that, uh, you know, we do out of the kindness. You know, the last time, or two times ago that I went, after one of the uh, day camps, the basketball camps, we stopped at this restaurant nearby, and they had they were known for their sweet tea right they have good sweet tea you know what good sweet tea is just a lot of sugar right that's what makes it good sweet tea so anyway I've got to get the sweet tea so I'm in line and we were wearing some bright shirts and there was a group of like 15 of us I think everyone in the group was you know uh, Asian and and then we're in line and and this guy who's in line he's kept looking and then he goes hey you know what are y'all what are y'all doing here I didn't give him the clearest answer in the beginning. I just said, oh, we're here, we're running a camp. And I'm sure, and this is my thought, but I'm sure in his mind he was thinking, oh, science camp, math camp, (laughs) SAT (laughs) camp, you know, um, and he he says, what kind of camp? Basketball camp. And, you know, now his just mind is just blown, like, basketball camp? You? You know? Um, I said, yeah. Yeah. I heard of Jeremy Lynn. come on, right? And, um, but this idea of going somewhere to demonstrate kindness, uh, going out to our neighborhoods to go and serve the people in Santa Ana, to shake a hand that might be um, dirty, to give food that seems maybe, you know, that, that, you know, we can, that they need, that they can't buy. Um, I want to challenge us to think about kindness. And we always ought to be in the act of kindness. Kindness is not a personality thing. It's not someone who is just bubbly or who is social. Uh, Not just that. But to sacrificially say, I'm here for you. So-and-so is in a difficult time. I have to go out of my way. I have to now go fight traffic, use my money, maybe buy him a meal. I have to get up early to go into, I need to do something. And I I think we, as we look to the kindness of our God in Christ, the natural response ought to be kindness. God uses the kindness of others to help Naomi through the situation. And I love this. Think about this. Naomi's has lost everything, and it is through the kindness of Ruth. It is through the kindness of Boaz that at the end, people were saying, oh, you are a blessed woman. It happens via the kindness of others. And I think about my life. I think about the kindness that I have received often uh, from many from our church and many from our friends and the encouragement that helped and maybe you have received it. But we also ought to be in the act of giving kindness. And there is someone you know that needs, that could use your help. And so there is this idea of kindness. The second thing about this story that I love in chapter 1 is this the, the story of everything is going well and then just everything falls apart. And then it's this kind of redeeming Process and you get to chapter 4, and man, they are back on top. They're redeemed in this way. This is a story of God is in control. God is still there when we don't think he is. If you live, as, you, as we live long enough, um, you experience the hardships of life. And for some of us, the passions we had maybe when we were in college and full of energy and we think, boy, this is how life is and boy, life has just beat us up along the way and we're here. And we're like, gosh, you know, it's not what I thought when I started following my God. In the midst of this, midst of this whole story, you see the fingerprints of God. You see the redemption of God. You see the future that they have here. Uh, John Piper says this, and this is a quote that I shared with you. Taken as a whole, the, the story of Ruth is one of those signs. It was written to give us encouragement and hope, and all the perplexing turns in our lives are going somewhere good. They do not lead off a cliff. In all the setbacks of our lives as believers, God is plotting for our joy. In all the setbacks of our lives as believers, God is plotting for our joy. So, your grandparents that went through so much, your mom and dad that sacrificed so much in the midst of their struggles, in their 30s and 40s or whatever that they were going through, they may not have seen the fruit of it. What 2018 would look like for their family. They may not have lived through that to get there. But God is there. You know, J.I. Packer in his Classic book, Knowing God, he talks about God's guidance. His guidance, like all of God's acts of blessing under the covenant of grace, is a sovereign act. Not merely does God will to guide us in the sense of showing us his way that we may tread it. He wills also to guide us in the more fundamental sense of ensuring that, and I love this, ensuring that whatever happens, whatever mistakes we make, we shall Come safely home. Slippings and strays, there will be no doubt, but the everlasting arms are beneath us. We shall be caught, rescued, restored. This is God's promise. This is how good he is. And so he is there. Through this story, he is there. And we see the picture of uh, Boaz being the redeemer and obviously um, you look through the lens of the New Testament, you say, boy, the Redeemer is Christ. I am Ruth. I had nothing. The Redeemer comes. The kinsman Redeemer comes and saves my life. The, the, the Redeemer's purpose, the kinsman's Redeemer, they're called the Redeemer because they would buy back the property that, that belonged to their family before, right? That they can't get anymore. They had lost everything. They would buy this back. So they would redeem it. Secondly, they would marry this person, and now ensure a future. God willing, by having a son. But thirdly, this word redeemer uh, that we see here is also used as the word avenger. And the Bible talks about the avenger who would avenge those who had now killed one of your own. And they would have the right to avenge them. And they would run to the city of refuge, right? And this idea of avenging for what was happening? And we see a picture of Christ here. Christ, Jesus Christ, what has he done? He has redeemed us. Right? He had paid the price for us. This idea of paying the price. Not only that, he is now our husband. We the church is we are his wife, right? The bride. But not only that, he is also the avenger. This means that he is going to execute justice for the sins that we have committed against God, and who would he go after? We would have to pay for it, but in our place, this Redeemer, Jesus Christ, steps in our place, and he sheds his own blood so we can now be counted as righteous. So we come here today... um, and in the midst of our um, lives, our heartaches, in the midst of things that are happening that are out of our control, somehow, I want you to know God is still there. And God has still got his hand on your life. He has a greater purpose. You may not even see it. Your next generation and maybe two generations from now will somehow say, boy, this person did this. My aunt did this for me. Or, you know, my grandma, sister or brother did this. Or my mom or dad did this. And this is going to somehow play out. And it will be evident for the future generations to come that God is at work in them. And it happens, and we get by today by the power of kindness we have for one another. As we look to the kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, the great Redeemer, who is so kind to us, we are kind to each other. We love each other deeply, genuinely. We abhor what is evil, love what is good. We have a brotherly love for each other. We sacrifice for each other. And so don't let... Kindness be something that is foreign to you. Look to the cross and let that now become contagious in your life. And we are kind to one another, knowing that God is in control. And so I pray that we would have a victorious life in this way. Could we? Let's bow our heads and pray together.